0: Good to be together, I can't wait to get into Ruth chapter 3. It's just a glorious picture of a Redeemer who foreshadows an even better Redeemer. Um, and before we do, though, let's turn to that Redeemer with our needs in prayer. Bow with me, if you would. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with thanksgiving. That you have sent your son to be our merciful high priest. We have one who can sympathize with our weaknesses, one who has been tempted in all ways as we are, but without sin, one who has endured more mistreatment and more sin at the hands of others than we can possibly fathom, and yet was without sin. He is our Redeemer. And because of him, we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to find grace and help in time of need. So, Father, we do that this morning as a people who need much grace. We thank you for the saving work that you've done that we can even call you Father. What an incredible privilege to draw near to you with that name on our lips. And, Lord, this morning, we now ask that your healing power would be known afresh among us. Father, in particular, these past weeks in Philippians seems to have birthed an unusual season of transparency and confession as brother after brother and sister after sister has come forward and just quietly disclosed lifelong struggles. Sometimes with crippling anxiety, anxiety, Father, for those people who are struggling with that yet and who are so ministered to by Philippians, continue your ministry to them and calm their hearts with gospel truths. You will never leave them or forsake them. It is your good pleasure to give them the kingdom. You know what each of us needs and you will faithfully provide. And in time, Lord, you will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Fathers, others have disclosed deep hurts, some decades old that still haunt them. And questions arise in their minds even today about whether this is your punishing them for some sin. Father, they need to hear afresh that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is finished. We still have one who accuses us, but it is in vain because we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ. He pleads our case, and he wins every time. And Father, we pray for those struggling with confusion, confusion that sometimes takes the form of anger as they wonder where you were in the darkest hours of their lives. May you grant them to know what Joseph declared to be true as those who he most should have been able to count on to have his back, to love him, to forgive him, plotted his murder, and then sold him into slavery. It took years, but he declared when they were reunited, which you intended for evil, God intended for good. Father, we have a great and sovereign Lord. You do according to all your will in heaven and on earth. Assure us, that your will is good, assures that we are in your will. You're sovereign over every detail of our lives, some that we understand and some that we do not. But one day, we will see all the details put together in a story so perfect, only you could tell it. Until that day comes, grant that we trust in your ways. Father, freedom from anxiety, And fear and confusion and anger is your design for our lives. We pray that that design would take shape this morning as we consider Boaz, a kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth, and understand that he is pointing us forward to an even greater redeemer, your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. It's been three weeks. Since we were last in the book of Ruth, which means probably a a very short review is in order. Uh, In chapter one, uh, we saw that a famine in Israel led Elimelech to take his family, his wife Naomi, his sons Malon and Chilion, to Moab, where they found food. While they were there, Elimelech dies. Uh, The two sons marry Moabite wives. Uh, There's about 10 childless years that follow and then the sons die. Sometime after this, Naomi hears that the famine in Israel is over, and so she decides to return. She tries to discourage her daughters-in-law from coming. She is successful with um, Orpah, but Ruth prevails on her and says, I'm not leaving you. Naomi gets back to Bethlehem, and she sums up her view of the last 10-plus years by saying, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. She's bitter, and she cannot imagine that God has been orchestrating these incredibly painful events in order to do her good, more good than she could possibly imagine. In chapter 2, we saw that Ruth goes out in the fields to glean something only the very poorest of the poor were forced to do without any planning or scheming on her part. She comes into the part of the field uh, owned by Boaz. She doesn't know who he is. She doesn't know, uh, he doesn't know who she is. She doesn't know who he is yet. It is coincidental as far as they concerned. It is providential if you're reading the story rightly. She works hard. She gains the notice of the workers and Boaz finally comes along and discovering her identity shows her great kindness. He's heard of her devotion to Naomi and Ruth is invited, almost commanded, to remain only in his field, under his protection. He instructs the workers not to harass her. At lunch, he invites her to drink from the water his servants have drawn, uh, to eat with him and his workers. He personally serves her. He leaves instructions that she be allowed to glean, not just at the edges of the field, but to actually follow the harvest around and glean in the vicinity of the the bundles, the sheaves, and for the workers to intentionally pull out handfuls of barley for her to pick up so that the job would be easy. One of the things we saw is that this indicates much more than just compassion on the part of Boaz. Boaz there are strong indications that Boaz has a romantic interest in Ruth. And the main point that I wanted to stress in chapter 2 is that we're witnessing the return of hope in Naomi's life. Chapter 1 ended with her dejected and bitter, seeing no hope. Chapter 2 unfolds in some detail how she should not be hopeless, how she should be hopeful and be trusting in God. God had not forgotten her. Generations before, he'd made provision for her inner law regarding relatives and widows and poverty and ways that grace can be poured into such difficult situations. Naomi has a relative. His name is Boaz, and he may have some responsibility to help her. He's wealthy, he's godly. God arranges the meeting that brings them back into their lives, and he shows compassion towards their plight and he is almost certainly interested in Ruth. Now that last observation, the one concerning whether Boaz kind of has his eye on this young foreign widow, is not meant to be something cute that we wink or that we smile at. If you're a couple of poor widows who need to go out in the fields to glean and sell your land to survive, as is the case, we'll see that more in chapter 4, The possibility that a godly, wealthy man might be interested in marriage is not something to be taken lightly. Ruth had bravely pledged to care for Naomi as long as Naomi is alive. And while she was running to God to take refuge under his wings, we saw that in chapter 2, she was nevertheless facing a very difficult future. The chance that Boaz might be willing to redeem these two women financially for Naomi, socially for Ruth through marriage. It's no small thing. And it's this possibility that suddenly is sprung on Naomi that causes her to transition from depression to praise. She says in Ruth 2.20, may he be blessed to the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and the dead. She's gone from saying, just call me bitter, to say, blessed be the Lord. It's a a radical transformation in just one chapter. The author encouraged us to see this hope building in other ways as well. In chapter 2, verse 1, Boaz is simply a relative, common term, no special designation for it. Um, And it's not the word that's used to denote a relative that has rights and responsibilities to help someone else. He's not introduced as a kinsman redeemer at the beginning of the chapter. But in verse 20, after Naomi hears of the meeting and sees Boaz's generosity, she declares him to be a kinsman redeemer. It's translated probably, if you're reading the ESV, as a close relative. It's a very particular Hebrew word. Uh, It occurs in a number of places and it just indicates that one who's in view in Deuteronomy 25 and in view in Leviticus 25 that says you have responsibilities when somebody falls on particularly hard times. There's so much to be hopeful for in chapter two as the author develops not just uh, Boaz's character, he's a good, godly, wealthy man, but his role, that he has some responsibility in view. But the chapter ends. We never read of Boaz returning to the field. We don't read of another meeting between them. Uh, The barley harvest and the wheat harvest both have ended. We're probably talking a few weeks here. Ruth has stayed close by the maids of Boaz as she was instructed to, and Boaz is nowhere to be seen. What, if anything, should Ruth and Naomi do? Now, if you've read the story, you know that they do something that seems kind of strange and a little bit risky. Chapter 3 is short. It's just 18 verses. So let's read it together, and then we'll go back and seek to understand what it is we have just read and why it is a godly approach and not a seductive approach. Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi said to her mother-in-law, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother in law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she said, I am Ruth your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she laid his feet until the morning. But arose before anyone could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. There's a lot here that needs explanation. If you read this chapter wrongly, and it's very easy to read it wrongly, The actions of these two women could be seen as sinful, seductive, manipulative, just utterly unbiblical. You've got a couple of scheming women seducing a wealthy older man in the middle of the night so that they can be financially secure. If this were occurring today, we would call them gold diggers. Neither Naomi or Ruth is a gold digger. It's not what the story's about. It's about three people working their way through a situation... That really doesn't have as many clear-cut rules as we might like. This is a chapter about seeking the will of God and, and, and the providence of God and the protection of God when there's no single text that you can point to and say, that tells me everything I need to do. This passage, this verse, that's it. It's not there. So what is it that led to the rather unusual plan? cooked up by Naomi we're not told explicitly but I don't think it's too hard to fill in the blanks first Naomi is clearly put this on the table she's looking to get Ruth married Um, when Naomi asks in verse 1 should I not seek rest for you she's using the same language she used back in chapter 1 verse 9 when she's seeking to send Ruth and Orpah back to Moab and she says The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. So, rest for Naomi in this context is what you get from being in a household, from being married, to having a provider. And as chapter 3 opens, she is again seeking rest for Ruth. Now, this is not out of line. Naomi knew Boaz had shown interest in Ruth. You've got to be a bit blind not to see it. And yes, some of us guys are a bit blind. Uh, but women see these things. And I think Naomi is right to say that there's interest here. Do I know <clears throat> pardon me? That's why Naomi stresses in verse 2 that Ruth had been with his young women. In other words, she'd been drawn into his household. He'd, she'd been invited to eat lunch with him. She knows what this means. So she sees that. She knows Boaz interest. She also knows that Boaz is a close relative. And so the idea of him being a redeemer for them, both financially and socially, has foundation in the word of God. It's not some wild scheme that Naomi cooked up on her own. This is her knowledge of the word of God and provisions God had made. It was possible that a close relative could redeem someone from financial distress, marry a childless widow, and raise up a son in the deceased man's name. And God had brought this relative into their lives. Third, Naomi knew that Boaz had not returned to the field after that first visit. As far as we know, just the one encounter. And this is not like Boaz, because he's described as a man of action. He sees something. It's the issue. He settles it that day. What would you do if you had just these few facts to go on? Boaz is a kinsman. He's shown romantic interest in Ruth, but in a matter utterly out of character for him, he doesn't make a move towards her. I think you'd probably do it, Naomi did. And you'd ask why. After all he did that first day, why is he not shown up again? Why is he not pursuing Ruth? It's a legitimate question. It's one I would ask. And I believe that there are answers in the text to that question. We noted one last week in chapter 2, namely an apparent age difference. We read in, in verse 10, of it's confirmed, rather, in verse 10 of our text, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Boaz understands this to be more the norm in the culture that, that Ruth would marry something closer, someone closer to her own age, well then Naomi would know that as well. And so it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see Naomi asking herself, I I wonder if Boaz feels that Ruth would not be interested in him because he is older. He, He calls her consistently my daughter. There is a significant age gap here. We don't know how much, but it is noteworthy. Naomi also knows that there's other factors in play that may be keeping Boaz kind of standing in the shadows. Boaz is a kinsman, yes. He has the possibility of being that kinsman redeemer, but he's not a brother to Elimelech or Malon. Those are the deceased husbands of Naomi and Ruth, and therefore he doesn't have any obligation under Deuteronomy 25. That's supposed to be a blood brother that says, I I will take My deceased brother's wife is my wife, and I will raise up a son in his name. There is no brother to Elimelech or Malon. And so the obligation spelled out in Deuteronomy 25 just isn't there for Boaz or for any other man in Bethlehem. The principle is there, but the actual commanded obligation is not. But just as important, he's not the closest relative. And therefore, the application of Leviticus 25, a second verse that comes in, the financial aspect of it, doesn't put him first in line to be the redeemer for Naomi or Ruth. And Naomi seems to know this. She knows he's not first in line because in 2.20, he described Boaz, she described Boaz as one of our closest relatives. Not the closest, but one of the closest. Someone else is first in line. Boaz knows it, and Naomi knows it. So those two facts, he's not a brother, and he's not the closest relative. Don't just release Boaz from any obligation. They also mean he doesn't really have any rights in this matter. He can't demand that Ruth become his wife. He can't just step in and redeem the field. Now, the author doesn't put all of this together for us immediately. At the beginning of chapter 3, we're speculating along with everyone else. But by the time we're done with the chapter, we find that all these things prove to be true. Boaz is somewhat surprised that Ruth has not been put off by the age difference, and while he seems eager to marry her, he is concerned, and he says, I'm not first in line. And if we can put all this together, so can Naomi. But it still doesn't explain why she cooked up such an unusual plan. Uh, in, in my, why not just send Word to Boaz and say, Hey, Ruth is interested. In my reading of the scriptures, that would not be the mother's job or the mother in law's job. That would fall to a man in the family to approach a man in another family and say, There's some interest here. But where's the man in the family of Naomi and Ruth? Their husbands are dead. The closest relative, picture how awkward this would be, go to this unnamed closest relative and say, would you go interview your replacement? We really don't want you to redeem, we want him to redeem. Awkward to say the least. So how does Ruth say yes to a question that Boaz very much wants to ask, but is not asked for all the reasons that we've noted? Well, she goes to him privately, Not publicly. She's not going to put him on the spot. I suspect that the late night scenario had more to do with privacy than with anything else. And since it's not her place to take the lead in the relationship and simply say, marry me, she finds ways to communicate her desires non verbally. That's why she gets cleaned up, dresses as well as she can. She's not there in her work clothes to talk about gleaning, she's there in her best clothes. To communicate, This is a more personal visit. And note how she approaches Boaz. She lays down at his feet. If her intentions were not honorable, if she was being seductive, she might have laid down by his side. But being at the feet is a position of humility and submission without any suggestiveness. When the woman in Luke 7 wants to show Jesus how much she loves him, and how grateful she is for having experienced forgiveness, she lays at his feet, wets them with her tears, wipes them with her hair. When you find someone at someone else's feet in the scriptures, it's never a position of seduction, but always of humility and submission and the seeking of favor. So that combination, when Ruth came to Boaz at night in private, how she came to him, dressed as well as she could, where she lay at his feet it's all designed to say the answer to the question that you want to ask me is yes without her saying a word it's designed to tell Boaz it's okay to move forward in a relationship without taking away his responsibilities to lead something Naomi seems very sensitive towards she instructs Ruth that once she has gone to Boaz that's it he will tell you what to do From there. When Boaz wakes up and he realizes someone is there, he's startled. It's dark enough, he has to ask who it is, and Ruth responds, I am Ruth, your servant. And notice that he now identifies himself, or herself rather, as one of Boaz's servants, which is a huge change from chapter 2, where she identifies herself as a foreigner. And again, where she says, I am not like your other servants. Here in chapter 3, she says, no, I'm one of your servants. I don't want to be on the outside anymore. I want to be part of your household. And then she says something more, something Naomi had not commanded her to say. She said, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Is that a demand that he marry her? Has she decided that Naomi's sort of nonverbal approach isn't clear or direct enough? It is an offer of marriage. At least that's how Boaz seems to take it. He says in verse 11, I will do for you all that you ask. You understand she's asking something. But this is both more subtle and more significant than Ruth just saying, marry me. If you remember back in chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz said, The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. The word wing in 2.12 is the same exact word we have in 3.9 where she says, spread your wings over your servant. Here's how I understand that. Boaz knows that Ruth is trusting in God to provide for her as well as for Naomi. He knows that she's left everything familiar and come to Bethlehem to seek refuge under the Lord's wings. She doesn't need a husband. She can glean, she can work, she can survive. They will be poor, but she can keep her commitment to Naomi. She came to Bethlehem after being warned by Naomi, there are no husbands for you here. So Ruth doesn't have to get married. But she does need the Lord to be gracious to her, to spread his wings over her. And in chapter 2, Boaz was that temporary wing. He cared for them. He showed compassion to them. They ate well for a couple of weeks because of his generosity. Here in chapter 3, Ruth is saying, please continue what you've started. Don't let the age difference hold you back from being God's provision for me. Let me take shelter under your wing as you live out the kinsman-redeemer role that the Lord has promised. Ruth has a very theological take on the relationship. She sees Boaz not just as a meal ticket. She sees him as God's provision to care for her and to care for Naomi. Boaz is impressed, and you can see it in his response to Ruth in verse 10. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And there there again is the confirmation. There was a significant age difference. But he says something else interesting. He said this last kindness is greater than the first. What was the first kindness? And what's the last kindness, and how is it greater? Well, the first kindness, I believe, is her commitment for life to care for her mother-in-law. She's already gone out into the fields to glean while Naomi, who's a full generation older, stayed home. Ruth literally carried the weight of serving an older and a less physically able or robust woman. That's her first kindness. What's the second Her second is her willingness to marry someone her father's age, which in context means that she will likely become a widow for the second time. And prior to that, she will have two people to care for in in their twilight years. If you've ever cared for a a parent in those last years, you can understand Boaz's statement that this is a great kindness. It is an all-consuming task. To care for older members of your family. So Boaz understands Ruth is not chasing his money. She's not demanding that he marry her. She is showing a kindness to both Naomi and Boaz, with a kindness to Boaz even greater than the kindness to Naomi. That's my best shot at explaining what's going on here, why Ruth and Naomi are not guilty of manipulation or seduction. They've figured out why Boaz is holding back, and they find a way to tell him respectfully without taking leadership responsibilities away from him. You don't need to hold back. Boaz, as Naomi has noted then in verse 18, is a man who will now step up and take the lead. But as we read what he said and what he did, I want to suggest to you this is maybe the most amazing thing in chapter 3 one of the most amazing things. If you get this, if you see what Boaz is doing and you can incorporate it into your life, it will change you radically. As far as we know, Boaz has never been married. Uh, There's two widows in this story. If he was a widower, I suspect we would know. No children are mentioned. It would seem that Boaz has been single all his life. And now this godly, older man has fallen in love with a godly young woman not just any young woman Ruth is special there are not many like her Boaz loves her and she has just made it clear that she wants to marry him so it's time to get married right she's taken some pretty it's it's interesting we're not told that Ruth loves Boaz not told that anywhere in the story But she has taken some pretty extraordinary steps to say, I want to be your wife. And God appears to be all over their meeting. And so the question is, how can it not be God's will that they marry? It's precisely at this point where Boaz does something that too few Christians seem willing to do. Namely, he submits his dream of marrying Ruth the whole counsel of God. Whole counsel being the key phrase. Here's what I mean. If we consider things in isolation, Boaz is free to marry Ruth. According to Deuteronomy 25, there's no one in line ahead of him. There are no brothers. No one with any prior or greater right to redeem Ruth through marriage. But when you consider not just Deuteronomy 25, but Leviticus 25... That speaks to the redemption of the poor by the closest relative. Someone's in line ahead of Boaz. Someone with prior rights. Now, at this point, we might say, well, those are different texts. Let the closest relative redeem Naomi's land, and then, Boaz, you're free to redeem Ruth through marriage. Different texts. Boaz doesn't see it that way. It's hinted at here. And it's made explicit in chapter 4 that whoever redeems Naomi's land must also marry the widow, Ruth. Ruth and Naomi apparently come as a package. And I think they're presented that way because of Ruth's pledge to Naomi, I will never leave you. I will care for you till the day you die. That that vow is put in jeopardy. If one redeemer redeems the land and Naomi becomes part of his household, and Boaz redeems Ruth and she is in his household. I don't pretend to be an authority in how their culture would have worked in these matters, but it seems an almost inescapable inference from the fact that Boaz links the redemption of the land with marriage to Ruth. We'll see this more in context next week. But let me remind you, or let me give you the words now. Ruth chapter 4, verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. I'm not aware of the law making any such demand. But since Ruth had bound herself to Naomi with a solemn vow, and the word of God says you're to keep your vows, Boaz rightly infers, and no one will challenge him in chapter 4, that the responsibilities of Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25 are linked, at least in this instance. That's the reasoning of a man who wants to know all that God's Word says about a particular situation. All the texts that speak to the issues that confront them are brought to bear, not just the ones that tell them what they want to hear. And tell me we're not all guilty of that. We find a text that tells us what we want to hear, and we close the book, unless we find something that challenges us. Boaz thinks through what the Word says, and he now submits all his hopes all his dreams, all his desires to take this incredible young woman to be his wife. He submits it all to the word of God and he says to Ruth, not yet, and maybe never. That's what verses 12 and 13 mean. He says, now it's true, I'm a redeemer. Yet there's a redeemer nearer than I, Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. If he will redeem you good, let him do it. it simply means if he will marry you good, let him marry you. How enthusiastic do you think Boaz was as he uttered those words? He loves this woman, but to be fully righteous, he is willing to submit his desires to the whole counsel of God, and in doing so, he will risk losing her. Is that the counsel you would give? Is that counsel you would follow? My prayer is that you will learn to say yes to both of those questions. His ways are better Than our ways not just higher this is just an incredible display of righteousness and faith and submission to God's word and I think it's only right that we see it as yet another way that Boaz foreshadows Christ the true kinsman redeemer what you may or may not know is that that word used to describe Boaz that kinsman redeemer it's used, uh, I believe, 20 times in just the last two chapters of Ruth. It's used another 43 times in the Old Testament, where it is specifically referencing the Lord. Let me give you just three examples. Job 19:25: "As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives." Psalm 19:14: "O oh Lord, my Rock and my Redeemer." Isaiah 41:14 Your redeemer is the holy one of Israel. In every verse I just cited it is exactly the same Hebrew word that's translated close relative as it describes Boaz. The, the New American Standard is a little more helpful as they translate it as kinsman redeemer. I think it's more accurate. But without question Boaz is meant to foreshadow the person and the work of the Lord the one who redeems us, not for the rest of our lives, as Boaz would do for Ruth and Naomi, but for the rest of eternity. Christ took on flesh. He became one of us, our relative, our kinsman, that he might also become our redeemer. And Boaz is simply one of the clearer and more intentional foreshadowings of this reality. And I don't think that we're wrong to see in his complete submission to God an even further foreshadowing as he says in in essence, not my will, but thine be done. The main point of this story, Ruth is going to have to wait for next week. But I do want to note in closing today that each chapter of the book has something in us that's just glorious and should stun us. In chapter one, I can't get over the fact that Ruth came came to faith. She just watched Naomi lose her husband. She watched her husband die. She watched her brother-in-law die. Everybody's childless. The family was there as refugees from a famine. How do you get to the place where you say, I want your God? <laughs> it's amazing. Naomi says, you don't want to come back to Israel with me. I'm pretty sure any training you've had in evangelism never taught you that when someone says, I want to go join the covenant community you're a part of, you say, no, go back to your idols. That's how hopeless Naomi was. And Ruth came to faith. In chapter 2, we were reminded again and again And again, that Ruth is a Moabitess. Three times we're told that, as though somehow we forgot from chapter 1. And I argued that the author wants us to remember that the hope that is just dawning in chapter 2 as Boaz shows up and he's generous and he's good, all this this hope that causes Naomi to explode in, in praise and in joy is coming in the person of Ruth to someone who's under a curse if you recall she's a Moabitess you're never to seek the welfare of anyone from Moab Ruth doesn't belong and yet there she is all the hope that's dawning in chapter 2 is dawning on a woman who has no right to expect any of it and there's something in chapter 3 that grabs my attention as well have already seen how Boaz foreshadows Christ in his title of kinsman-redeemer, in his work of redemption, in his evident righteousness, in his full submission to the law. To say that Boaz is an impressive figure in this chapter is an understatement. But now I think it's time, in closing, to bring to light one amazing fact. We're not told in the book of Ruth. The people would have known it. The people in Bethlehem would have known this absolutely clearly. We don't find out until Matthew 1 in a genealogy. And what we find is this. Boaz is the son of Rahab, the harlot of Jericho. Let that sink in. Rahab raised Boaz, the righteous, Christ-foreshadowing hero of the story. Have you ever made a mess of your life? I mean, a mess. You have sinned. You've sinned badly and frequently. Addictions, sinful behaviors, sinful choices, all things that we did that we're rightly ashamed of now. If that's true of you, you probably asked, will God ever be able to use me? I know He can forgive me, I know one day I'll be in heaven with him, but can I be of any use to him? He knows my past. Will our kids be as messed up as I was. Rahab was a pagan harlot. She's the tragic woman on federal highway waiting in some dark corner to sell her body to a stranger. But she came to fear God. She repented. She married into what would become the royal line of Judah and against all all odds, God chose her to raise Boaz, a profoundly righteous man and a forerunner of Christ. And if that does not birth hope in your heart for your future, the future of your children, no matter how badly you started out in life, I don't know what will the harlot of Jericho raises the hero of the story. Could the delight that God has in redeeming us and cleansing us from sin and rejoicing over us to do us good be portrayed any more powerfully than through this story where Rahab raises Boaz who then redeems the widow, the Moabitess, Ruth. The redemption of God is nothing short of breathtaking. I want you to think on that in the week to come. We'll be in Ruth 4 next week. But as you think on it, I just want to let it guard you from underestimating the glory that is your redemption in Christ. God doesn't just say, I forgive you. He tells you stories that are just jam-packed with redemption and glory and love and forgiveness and hope. He tells a story with a repentant harlot who raises a righteous Boaz who redeems a cursed widow. Let's pray. Father, as we close today, I want to pray for any who do not know Jesus Christ as their kinsman, redeemer. May they see in Boaz a noble, kind, righteous man, himself but the shadow of a much greater Redeemer, the one who just doesn't help us in this life but helps us in the life to come. We, like Ruth, were born under a curse. We were born in sin. We are all, in that sense, from Moab, no claim on God, separated from your glorious promises to your covenant people. But in Christ, those who are once far off can be brought near by his blood. Widows can be made brides in the story you're telling. And so, Father, I pray, really for all of us, there's only one place any of us belong, and that's at the feet of Jesus, worshiping, wetting his feet with our tears, because we have seen the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we don't want to go anywhere else. Would you do that for all of us in this room today? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Church, would you stand with me? Let's respond in worship.